Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 33, Unconscionable. And in episode 33, I broke down the first half of former homicide investigator from the Houston Police Department, Billy Belk. And up to this point, my plan was last week to do Belk's entire testimony. I was going to just hit on a few important points so that we could move past it. But as I started to dig into Belk's testimony... I realized that he offers a lot of valuable insight. And for the first time, he's not just talking about speculation and theories, because that's all we've heard from just about anyone short of Rossi, who did an actual evidence-based blood spatter analysis, which, again, I agree, her blood spatter analysis was not wrong. But then, of course, for 100 pages of transcript, she goes on about what she thinks happened at the crime scene, even though she'd never been to the crime scene and didn't study the crime scene photos, and didn't study all the reports. Because that's the difference between Rossi and Belk, is Belk has spent hundreds of hours going through every single report, every single crime scene photo, every single crime scene video, every transcript, everything in the case, in order to formulate his opinions, as opposed to the rest of the experts we've heard who just basically are taking the prosecutor or the police department's word for what happened and offering an opinion based on that. So we're going to cover that also this week. The case against Anand Syed, the docuseries on HBO, wrapped up. And so I'm sure we've got a lot of questions about that. Mike and I are not together again. I'm in Memphis again right now, and Mike is at home. So we're 500 miles away trying to make this work. So far, Mike, you've been doing a fantastic job, by the way. They sound great. Hey, thanks, Bob. I do what I can, man. Yep, and if I sound a little under the weather, I just I've I've been through a million time zones. I, I was able to fit in a five day vacation with Becky over the course of this long stretch of time of not being home, but then it was literally one night at home and then back on the road again working. So we're working on two different cases out on the road, so I'm bouncing back and forth to several different places. So I spent a lot of time on airplanes, a lot of time in hotels, and a lot of jet lag back and forth. So I've, I've had this cold for about a month now that I just can't seem to kick. So uh, my voice sounds a little off. That's why. And that is enough about what's going on. Let's get right into your questions. Sounds good to me. Tech 
Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. First, we're going to get into questions listeners had over the HBO docuseries, the case against Anand Syed, and some of their thoughts on the case. Okay. Lauren writes to us, how did you feel on the documentary overall? She says, to be honest, I think the documentary did a good job of outlining the case if you didn't already have a lot of information. Also, she adds, do you think these private investigators are getting anywhere with this case? Yeah, first of all, I'd say that I really enjoyed the docuseries. Uh, I, I do have to say I'm a little disappointed in it, but it's, it's nothing to the fault of the, the filmmakers. And really, it's a, it's a testament to all of you, the listeners, our show, and specifically Undisclosed, in the fact that there was not a lot of new information. You know, they, they brought in these investigators to really dig into the case and what it seems like, at least based on what's been shared in the docuseries, that they didn't find a whole lot of new information. And I don't necessarily think that's to their fault. I think that what that means is the previous investigators did a really good job. I mean, everything you, the listeners have picked apart, things I've found. Uh, and again, a, a heavy load of that goes to the investigation that was done by the undisclosed team with Robbie, Susan and Colin. Everyone has dug so deeply into the weeds in an unrestricted format with the podcast. You know, we, we can make as many podcasts as we want. They can be as long as we want and we can get all the information out there as opposed to a filmmaker that's got to cut everything down into four hours. So I, I do have to say I, I wasn't terribly impressed with the new information they found. If I'm giving my honest opinion, I think that one thing that was lacking from the docuseries for the people that didn't know the case, because that's a challenge, too, for the filmmakers. They have a, a mixed audience that are going to watch this series. You're going to have the people that know the case like the back of their hand and have been studying it for three years. And then they have people that have no idea about the case at all and they're coming into it fresh. And it's, it's a mixed audience and it's a very difficult production to put together because of that, because they can't just assume everybody knows everything because the new people will have no clue what's happening. But then they also can't really dumb everything down to explain all of the basics of the case because a big part of the audience that already knows the case very well will be bored by that. And I thought that they towed that line pretty well. You know, they mix things in like you know, we mentioned earlier with the graphics they used during the first episode to kind of bring hate to life and things like that. But w one thing that I didn't particularly like about the docuseries was there was no, I guess, central voice or narrator or somebody to explain or point out parts that were significant. And I say that because I, you know, I watched it with Becky, who has a kind of a cursory knowledge of the case. And there were some, some pretty big reveals here uh, that, you know, we have Jay Wilds telling his ex-girlfriend that, you know, he got caught with a bunch of weed 
and was telling the police, you know, whatever they needed to hear in order to get out of it. Uh, the revelation about uh, not a real name, Kathy or Christy, uh, not being in, in class or not being home on the night when supposedly Adnan and Jay stopped by, which affects her story and Jay's story and Jen's story. You know, those were those were big reveals. And it's new information that is significant and it matters. But I've talked to a few people and some people that I've been working with while I've been out on the road. And they all had the, you know, I asked them, what did you take away from the docuseries that was really big and significant in the case? And they kind of missed those points because, you know, they they happened. And if you knew the case and you were watching and you were listening and, and looking for them, you see that these were pretty big revelations. But I feel like it would have been a better move maybe to have someone, a narrator or somehow someone to kind of recap that information and explain why it was so important. Because I I think that based on the people that I've spoken to that don't know the case really, really thoroughly, uh, that watched the docuseries and walked away from it thinking nothing new was found when in fact there was some new information there. And Mike, actually, you fall into. Have you watched the fourth episode? I know you had watched the first three. Yeah, I caught it uh, a day later on Monday, and I thought it was pretty good. I'm not as well researched on the case as you and a lot of the listeners are. Well, so you, as one of those viewers that doesn't have, you're a lot like Becky, where you've heard a lot about the case from me, but haven't really deeply researched it. So you, you kind of being into that category. Uh, what were your takeaways? Did you feel like there was any big revelations or is some of what I was just saying, does that kind of fit into how you viewed it? There weren't as many revelations as I was expecting, um, especially with as much time that they've taken to put this docuseries together. There were some things I wanted them to look into more based on kind of the research you've been doing that I've seen you do and that I'm interested in that they really kind of glossed over. What things were those? I'm sure we'll get into it with some of these questions, but it was mainly around Don and the LensCrafters time card situation. The biggest revelation overall to me was the phone call between Jay and his ex-girlfriend, where he did give kind of a backstory that I hadn't caught before about being caught with the marijuana, and then explaining that the police had that leverage over him to get him to do whatever they wanted him to do. Right, and that was, you know, and you and I, the, for the, the one day that we were actually in the studio together this month, um, we talked a little bit about the... The, the Christie thing was a was a, a big deal for me. The when they you know, the undisclosed team had figured out a couple of years ago that the conference she said that she was at likely occurred on a different day, but they went further with it now and they have her her school schedule and show that she was in fact at school on the night when supposedly all this happened. Yeah, that was a big deal, but that was I, I know that Becky didn't quite understand why that was a big deal and and if i remember correctly you didn't quite understand why either yeah well first of all with that situation it was kind of hard for me to understand how they could pinpoint that she was in fact in class that day i understand that according to like her schedule she had to be there or she would fail the class but like they didn't quite prove to me that she was in fact in class that day yeah and that's a really good point and and the, the kind of the explanation the way i understood it from Christie was that it was a winter semester. So we used to, I went to, to, to college at the University of Colorado and, and you could take these there at least you could take these winter semester courses, which was literally like three weeks. They were very abbreviated courses. Uh, and you could get your full credit for them, but you had to be there every day because it was only again, instead of a 16 week course, it was a three week course. So it was like 
boom, boom, boom. It was a way to very quickly, you know, either get ahead or make up for credits, but it was a lot of work in a very short period of time. And, and so I guess I understood what Christy was saying that when she said she got to be in that class that she wouldn't have and couldn't have blown that off or she would have flunked the class because a lot of them, at least the ones that I've taken and I, and I can't speak for, for her classes, but those were some of the few courses that I've taken in college where attendance was a requirement. You know, if you don't show up, you fail, period. It's not just that you missed work, but you don't fail. So, uh, you know, I, I get where they were going with it, but yeah, I, mean, I can absolutely see. And to your point, I guess that doesn't necessarily prove that she was in class. But my issue with it was, was more just, I, I wish just for the questions that I'm getting through social media and emails and stuff after it, I wish they had driven that point home a little further as far as why it's so significant that she was in class that day. Mm-hmm. And, and, and part of that is they just don't have time. You know, Susan Simpson got to be kind of that central narrating voice talking about the cell tower records and she did a great job. But again, everything is so limited in time because all of that works together. The cell tower records, the changing of Jay's story that coincided with the information and timing of when they got certain information about the cell tower records and how Christy came into the narrative to begin with. That was a very complicated puzzle that, that had been put together that's now being dismantled. That maybe they just didn't have enough time to break it apart, but that's one area where I wish they would have had somebody just, you know, I don't, you know, just a talking head somewhere to kind of explain that part of the docuseries or explain why that element of the case is so important. And one more thing I wanted to touch on was the fact that these investigators were doing what seemed like a real time investigation throughout the production. And you could tell they had a limited amount of time to work with. What I noticed they did with the grass expert was they started the investigation and put the ball in motion early with the grass expert to try and get some results as far as how the grass under the car appeared and how it would indicate if the car had been had been recently parked in that location. But their end result, which came at the end of the in episode four, was that there wasn't a very conclusive answer uh, scientifically from the from the expert. He was he was able to deduce some information from the from the tread on the tires, but not the grass. And I think that goes to show that these investigators had to take what they got at the end of the day. At the beginning of the series, they could follow all these leads, but the only thing they could use in that in the production at the end of the day was what what the results of their investigation showed. And some of those results were a little underwhelming. Yeah, that was a big disappointment. I mean, it's not anybody's fault. It, the, the science is what it is because, you know, it's done in real time, but also there's, it was very obvious from the call with SH, the guy from LensCrafters at the end, that they were still recording filming right up to the wire, right up to the very end. In episode two, when the grass expert comes in, you know, it, it felt like it was foreshadowing a big reveal. And then, yeah, it was, it was a real letdown when the guy comes back, you know, in episode four and says, no, there's nothing there. I can't tell you anything because I, I don't know. I guess I just don't know how the production works because I was curious as to why they they put so much into it on the front end when the the final result was going to be nothing. Unless I mean, I, I guess part of what it does is it shows that they're going to it's a good demonstration that they're, they're kind of going scorched earth, doing whatever they can possibly do, even bringing in a grass expert. And, and they're showing us that, you know, they tried and there's nothing there. But, you know, the big reveal for me, it. it it kind of underscored what I found to be much more significant, which was the neighbor 
the woman that lived in that area back then who very strongly said there's no way a car could have been parked here for six weeks and it would it would have stayed here you know we would have we would have called the police they would have come and tagged it or towed it or whatever happened that there's just no way that a car would have sat there for that long to me that was a big reveal and that was work on the part of the investigators you know they're going knocking on doors and talking to people just boots on the ground type stuff and found some good information so i i I'm a little curious as to why they chose to make the grass expert thing a part of it. But as you know, we do a real time investigation on the podcast. So that shit happens to us all the time. Right. I was trying what I was trying to articulate earlier, too. It was kind of this this whole thing of they had to use what they had. So where they have these promising ideas in the early stages of their investigation that don't pan out. I feel like they had to kind of gamble at the beginning, follow the the most likely leads that were going to turn out some new information. And then use that use the results, good or bad. They kind of had no choice in the matter because that's what they recorded, that's what they filmed, that's what they you know only had time to do in this production. And I think that's why some of those aspects at the end were underwhelming. Yeah, and I'm sure I think gamble is the right word that you chose there. And you know they're they're setting. I mean, I, I've been a part of putting together storyboards for things like this, and and you kind of build out scenes and what you think. You know, what's the arc of the whole series? What's the arc of each episode? What do the scenes look like? And, you know, if, if there was a hope or an, an assumption or a hope made early on that this grass expert could give us information that may really push the ball forward in the case, and that becomes a scene in episode two, and then you have a plan for a season scene in episode four where we're going to get that conclusion. Because that that was one of the things that took a long time to pan out, right? He said that it, it was, right. He had to put it in there and incubate the grass or whatever for six weeks time and all all of that. So they just had to kind of wait, and then finally the results come, and there's nothing there. And then and then of course he talks about the the grass that which is significant, the grass that's in the tread of the the tires. I mean, there's so much evidence that that car was not fucking there that entire six weeks. I mean, it's overwhelming how much evidence there is. That was one of the things I think for the people that know the case well, especially the people that listen to Undisclosed, you know, when he's talking about the the green grass and the wheel wells and all that, and it makes that point. For people that followed Undisclosed and all that, I think there was kind of this, yeah, Susan already figured that out. But I think the the overwhelming majority of the audience or the part of the audience that doesn't know the case or hasn't dug that deeply into it, that was new information and and it was shocking. But again, I I just I just felt like and and I guess that's to the credit of Amy Berg, the filmmaker, in that she was careful not to push forward any theories or draw any hard lines. Where I, it seems like the the point was, here's all the information, and let the viewers decide for themselves. So I, I get why they did it, but for me, kind of the the consumer watching the series, you know, I I want someone to tell me what that means and why it's so significant, or really drive those points forward. So. Probably ethically, it was a it was a better move by the the, the documentarians to kind of leave those things open ended. Just as a, as a selfish consumer, I wish that they had taken more time to drive points home and explain why certain things were significant. And really quick, Bob, one thing that comes to mind when you mention that is I think a lot of people, uh, whether they're researched in the case or not, watch watch that docu series and watch a lot of docu series in hopes from the beginning, crossing their fingers, that they're going to get a resolution at the end. I think that's actually a rare thing, especially in the true crime genre, for something like that to actually have a concrete 
definitive conclusion. Why exactly is that? Is that because of ethical issues? Is that legal matters? Is it a little bit of both? Well, I think that in this case, it's even more difficult. So that's always going to be tough, right? Because, I mean, especially when dealing with post-conviction work, I mean, certainly you're not going to start filming of a of a documentary and then have somebody get exonerated at the end of it. It takes that that process just takes years. This was a bold choice because of the fact that it's been picked the case has already been picked apart. So it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning where these private investigators were tasked with digging into the weeds and finding new information when there's been literally a million people already doing that and broadcasting it publicly. So, you know, there's not a lot of leads left to to pick from. But I think that, you know, so that, I think that's part of it in this particular case. But and then I'm with you in the fact that I was, you know, I was really hoping not necessarily there was going to be a conclusion, but that there was going to be a big bombshell. But then also part of the challenge, you know, nowadays when you're when you're making something like this is how small the world is. So it, I was talking to Robbie the other day. And, you know, she said the, the big reveal, they had to rework the fourth episode because th- the big reveal was going to be that they sent all the DNA away for testing and it all came back and there's none of Anon's DNA found on the crime scene. And it got scooped. That was, you know, because I, I was, I was shocked that, you know, Robbie and Justin Brown and, and everybody was, was putting out on social media that these DNA results came in a few days before the final episode aired. And then why are you spoiling? Why are you spoiling your own, uh, your own finale episode? But but my understanding is that the Baltimore Sun somehow got word of that information, and they were running a story with it, uh, which was spoiling the fourth episode of the of the docu series. So they just said, you know, hell with it, and they just went out with it and and put the information out on on social media. So you know that's a that's a challenge. Keep in mind, a lot of these active investigation TV shows. At the end of them, somebody's getting sued, like like just about every time. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, our friend Jim Clemente, you know what happened to, I don't know about him specifically, but CBS, when they did the case of John Benet Ramsey, you know, they did a fantastic investigation. And when it was over, it's been all over the news, Burke Ramsey sued the shit out of everybody because, you know, they made people think that it was pointed back at him. You know, we have, I don't think of with West of Memphis, but prior to that, even you had Terry Hobbs suing the Dixie Chicks, you know, you have. So I, I think there's probably much more a much more heightened awareness now, probably on the part of the networks because they're the ones that I think that are held ultimately liable. So in this case, who knows? And I'm not saying I know I don't know this at all, but you know who knows? They may have had some some really damning evidence against a particular suspect, and they put the the rough cut together, and HBO was like, nope, that's going to get us sued. Just in general, I think it's tough to, you know, investigations like this take a long time. They take years. And then you have these kind of false hopes. So, for example, just yesterday, so we're recording this on Thursday. On Wednesday, there was a big breaking news story in the missing Maura Murray case. Uh, Maura Murray, if you haven't listened to that podcast, by the way, it's fantastic. The hosts are amazing people and um, the podcast is really good, but they've been they've been investigating this disappearance of Maura Murray, who disappeared like 15 years ago in New England. And you know there was helicopters and news vans and the FBI and the state police and everyone and taking jackhammers into this house. And in you know the the thought the hope was 
that maybe they had finally found her body, that maybe it had been put into some fresh concrete that was poured shortly after she went missing. And so, and then that's more Murray's been going on for over three years. And we thought finally there's a resolution here. And then again, it turned out that there wasn't. So that, that just happened. It's, it's, it's hard to draw those conclusions. I don't know that I, that I really answered your question, Mike, but I, I think that, I think that what you said, the maybe not so much ethically, but legally, it gets a little hairy and dicey to point fingers at someone, which is what we want, right? For the conclusion, we want at the end to be like, right. nope, this person did it. And it's just very, very unlikely to happen. And then you also have the fact that, you know, these are active legal cases. So maybe they have the information to point at someone and say, that person did it. But they don't want that person to know they have that information because they're trying to build a case against them for an upcoming trial or something like that. Okay, this next question is from listener Riley. What if Stephanie has something to do with this? That would explain her silence and perhaps explain Jay's stories. Also, is he protecting her? I don't think so. I don't think there's any... Nothing about the crime scene looks like this was a female to begin with um, or, you know, you know, a female on her own. You know, this Jim Kilmonty's profile uh, was that we're probably looking for, you know, a male suspect with a known personal relationship to Hay. There's no information that anyone has that Hay would have been interacting with Stephanie on that day. I will say, though, that Stephanie has been silent through all of this. And one thing they showed in the docuseries was that when Jay went to his sentencing, the only person that was in the courthouse was Stephanie. She was sitting in the back of the room. And keep in mind that we've talked to Jay's friend Laura, even from what Jen has said, neighbor boy E that we had on the show uh, back in season one. No one that knew Jay, that was close to Jay, had any idea about any of this. You know, Jen obviously knew that he was a part of it, but she didn't know to what extent or what his deal was. His friend Laura, who was very close to to Jay, had no idea any of this was going on. Neighbor boy had no idea that any of this was going on. So Jay was keeping this secret, which, you know, you're in Baltimore. You don't want to, I guess you don't want to tell anybody that you're snitching on someone to begin with. But this was certainly something that Jay was not proud of, whether it's because, you know, if you believe he was involved or that he wasn't. But Stephanie knows what's going on. And Stephanie was also very good friends with Adnan. And Stephanie has been very silent, like completely silent about this. To my knowledge, she's never spoken to anyone. I'm certain the private investigators tried to get her to talk. Sarah Koenig tried to get her to talk. She's never said a word. She's never done an interview. I feel that if anyone knows, if there's anyone that Jay would have been honest with about this, it probably would have been Stephanie. And so it's frustrating because Stephanie was also friends with Adnan. You know, I, I believe, especially at this point, after even the more evidence that's come out now, there is zero possibility Jay has any clue what happened in this crime. And maybe he was actually honest with Stephanie about that. And and maybe Stephanie kept that quiet at the time. I'm sure she was very conflicted because Stephanie was obviously friends with Adnan, too. But it's it's not as so I'm sure some of you listening right now are like are, are thinking, well, that bitch, if she knew that Jay was lying on Adnan, why didn't she say something? He was her friend. But this is so complicated. Look at what we know that the detectives were doing back then. They were telling everyone for Krista told us this, Laura told us this. They were telling everyone that they had Adnan's fingerprints, 
They had his DNA. They were 100% certain that Adnan was the guy. So even for Jay, they're even telling this stuff to Jay. So it it becomes uh, an end justifies the means type of scenario, which is not okay. But for, for Jay, for example, we're looking at his situation as if you believe, like I do, that Jay actually knows nothing about this and this is all a made-up lie. We're looking at that like, well, he just lied to protect himself. Well, that's true, but I think there's more to it than that. So they bring him in and say, we need you to tell the story, or it's either going to be you or him. Which one do you want it to be? Because someone's going down for this. And I guarantee you what they told him was, we have his DNA all over the crime scene. We have his fingerprints at the crime scene. We know for a fact it was him. So now Jay feels like it's twofold for him, right? So he is helping himself, but at the same time, he's helping them get Adnan because Adnan's guilty. Even though what he's saying isn't true, he believes Adnan is guilty because the police told him that Adnan was guilty. Just like they told Laura, just like they told Krista. And I'm sure that's what, if this is the scenario, and if Stephanie knows maybe that if Jay was lying, I'm sure she was also told that they know he did it. They just needed this extra testimony that his DNA was on the scene, his hairs were on the scene, his fingerprints were on the scene, even though none of that's true. In that perspective, it makes it seem like it makes it a little more understandable as to why Jay would go to the lengths he did uh, with his testimony at trial to put it on away like that. Yeah, and that's the thing is these things are always so much more complicated than we realize, you know, and that's something that Jim Clementi has really helped me understand with it when it comes to crime scenes or witness testimony like this. Like, I think these things are dynamic. It's never as black and white as you think. All right, this one's from Steph. What do you think will happen now that the DNA evidence shows no connection to Adnan? I, I don't think that that is going to be, and I'm going to get into the DNA results, by the way, more on Sunday. Um, I'm starting to study them right now, and I'm working on writing that episode for for Sunday. So I'll get into it a little deeper. But on the surface of it, it's probably not going to do anything for him, which is bullshit. Because as they say, absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. So what they found is there's no DNA evidence linking Adnan to the crime scene. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't at the crime scene. And that's the the argument the state will make. It will probably not be. So, so the difference would be, say they found a DNA profile underneath Hayes' fingernails and it came back to whoever, some other person. That would be exculpatory, super exculpatory evidence because that is a place where you would expect to find the killer's DNA. Fortunately, all the DNA profiles they have were all just from around the crime scene. And some of them weren't even, you know, there was like the condom wrapper and stuff that were found like out on, at the road. But, you know, then we have these uh, what they called wires in their initial investigative reports. It called them ropes. But there were these couple of they look like clothesline to me uh, right near the body, like within inches of the body. Now, that's very close to the body. It's hard to imagine that doesn't have a connection to the crime itself. But you can't conclusively say that it does. So it's not exculpatory enough to exonerate Anon, unfortunately, unless we're able to identify a profile. Uh, and even with that, so, well, I guess, I guess they'll say the wire that was found on the scene where they have a full profile. You know, if they found, found somebody's profile on that that shouldn't be there, then that would then become pretty exculpatory. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to, as I, on the fly here, trying to think of a scenario where it would be easily explained. So let's say, for example, that profile on the wire is one of the police officers that were there on the scene. Well, we, we know they were at the scene. That's why their DNA was there. That's explainable. But then say they, they test that profile and it is a serial killer's profile or it is another suspect's profile that shouldn't have been out in those woods, then it would become more exculpatory. But unfortunately, just the absence of Adnan's DNA in the crime scene or on the evidentiary items that were tested is not going to be enough to exonerate Adnan. Because you can always have the arguments of, you know, well, Adnan's DNA wasn't found under Hay's fingernails. And they could say, well, maybe nobody's DNA was found under Hay's fingernails. Maybe she didn't. And, and there was, by the way, like a partial profile there, but it wasn't a full profile. But they can, the state can always make an argument as to why the killer's DNA wouldn't be in a particular place. It's got to be pretty definitive to link someone else to the crime. John says, what are the actionable items to come out of this documentary in regards to what can be used the soonest in the next stages of Anand's court proceedings? Honestly, I don't think there's really anything that's going to be able to be used in the in the proceedings as we have right now because you know, we're still limited to the scope of the PCR case that already exists right now. You, you, we can't be adding in new evidence. So, you know, as Colin, I thought, did a fabulous job of explaining on our follow-up a couple of weeks ago, the next most likely step is, you know, I think you can file an appeal up to the federal court, but then the, the most logical step that's probably going to win a non a new trial is to go back and file an ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel because his original post-conviction attorney didn't raise the cell tower issue. So, you know, you can't, none of this stuff matters. So a lot of what we found through the docu-series, I think, will, will be used in a couple of ways. So if Adnan is granted a new trial, Based on that ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel claim or for whatever claim, that's when you'll see a lot of this if the state chooses to try again, which I've said for years, there's no way. I cannot imagine any possible way that the state would try to try him again because there's just nothing there. I mean, all they ever had to begin with was Jay, and Jay has gone on record since even the trial and changed his story again. And um, I didn't even catch it. I saw it on social media, but apparently there was a little at the very end of the episode when they were kind of putting up like at the title screen, you know, new information where things were at. that The conviction was overthrown. Apparently there was something there where Jay did speak to, I guess, the investigators, but didn't let them record him, but said that Adnan had told him to buy like 10 pounds of weed or something like that. Because, I mean, yeah. I mean, I've never, I've, I've, I can honestly say in my life, I've never purchased marijuana anywhere, but 10 pounds of it seems excessive for a couple of teenage kids. Um, I, I can't, I don't even know what that looks like, but I feel like that's a lot of weed. So it's just another bullshit story. My point being that I don't see how the state could use Jay at this point. And I don't know how they could even get him to testify. I don't think they could get him to testify again. I don't think they could use him because his story has changed so many times. We have such a better, clearer understanding of of the kind of the evolution of his of his statements now, much more than Gutierrez had back then. You know, Jen just said right on the docu series, "I won't testify again. I'm not doing it again." So they don't have any case against him. But if they chose to t- try him again, that's when you would see information come up, uh, like about Christie's ch- class schedule. 
uh, the new cell tower from it, probably the witness from you would probably hear from like the witness, the woman that lived near where Hayes' car was found. You would hear from her and she would testify there's no way that would have been there for that amount of time. So a lot of those types of things you would hear in a new trial, but they're not going to be necessarily relevant to the current case that's going on right now. Billie Jean says, now that they are discussing revisiting parole for juvenile life sentences in Baltimore, would it be possible for Adnan to apply for parole based on actual innocence like Ed Eights did? I think that's possible. Honestly, I don't know enough about Maryland law to know how that would work there or what Justin's legal strategies are. Speaking of legal strategies, I know this wasn't the question, but one thing that was a pretty significant bombshell was the fact that the state actually did make a plea offer to Adnan. And this is for some of you that either didn't watch the docuseries or maybe didn't catch it. It was a great look inside of the struggle that is post-conviction work, especially for an innocent person. Because so Adnan was offered this fall to plead guilty and they would make him serve four more years in prison. So that means that he would be released in 2022. When that offer was made, and that's how these things always work, it's just like what happened to the West Memphis Three. You know, they were they were in the process. They were they were they were going to get an evidentiary hearing, and the ball looked like it was moving forward and to their advantage. It looked like there was a good chance they might have won an actual innocence exoneration or won a new trial, but there's no guarantee. And as we saw with Ednan, the process takes years, and then sometimes the rug gets yanked out from underneath you. So these plea offers come in prior to these rulings. So this should help explain kind of the Alfred plea in the West Memphis 3 case too. The state could have waited to see what the results were of the the higher court's ruling and then made an offer. But they didn't because I mean I I think everyone thought the state the the court was going to uphold the lower court's ruling and the conviction was going to be thrown out. At that point the state has no bargaining power anymore. Adnan has a new trial. You know, they could offer him an Alfred plea at best, which means he's out now and the case is closed. So they'll they'll make a plea offer prior to getting results from something like that or getting a ruling because they still have some bargaining power, meaning at that point, Adnan and Justin are still rolling the dice. They're still gambling because, you know, they believe his conviction is going to be thrown out as soon as they get this ruling, but they don't know that. If the conviction doesn't get thrown out, now he's stuck in prison for the rest of his life. So they throw this kind of four-year more sentence at him, and he ultimately turned it down. And now we're looking at it in hindsight, now that we know the conviction was reinstated. And it's it's absolutely heartbreaking and tragic because had he taken the plea deal, we'd be you know three and a half years away from him 100% for sure walking out of prison and this being over with. He'd still be a convicted murderer for the rest of his life, but he'd be home. And instead, because he didn't take the deal, as of right now, Adnan Syed is going to die in prison. He's going to spend the rest of his life in prison unless something else happens and the conviction is overturned, which, again, I believe that's going to happen, but it's going to take year. It probably will take four years before that happens, and it's going to start this process all over again. So it's frustrating, and you know the, the episode was extremely emotional, finding out that Anand's mom had leukemia. That was a very raw and real moment you know i've i've i have met her and spent time with her and of course i'm very good friends with rabia so that was that was pretty gut-wrenching to me and it was it was just as emotional for me too though 
watching this process of the plea deal because we're watching it in hindsight, knowing that the conviction is going to be reinstated. And and of course, I was at one point hoping that was the big reveal. I, all I was thinking was, God, please tell me he took the deal. Please tell me he took the deal because he doesn't know yet, but we know that the conviction is going to be put back in and he's going to have still this life plus 30 or life plus 40 sentence on top of him. Bob, we've got a lot of questions left about the docuseries, and maybe we can get to those this Sunday or next week. But we're running a little long, and I know that everybody wants to hear your take on the Don time card issue. So I want to read you this last question from Lisa. Okay. Lisa writes, I hate to even say it, but can you explain your thoughts on the LensCrafters time cards? She says, I watched the documentary and listened to Undisclosed, and I'm still confused. Well, she's not the only one that's confused, honestly. I mean, I guess I'll say it. I'm a little pissed off at QRI is the name of the investigation company, these investigators. Uh, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and I honestly, and maybe it's just ego talking, and I tried not to do that, but I feel like they kind of made a conscious effort to shut down or to kind of brush my investigation aside. I, I don't know why, but again, I'll walk through kind of the history of this. Amy Berg, as well as other producers that were involved in this docuseries approached me back in 2016 and wanted me to be a part of the docuseries. And that was the plan. Uh, we were working on negotiating contracts. I had some issues, some scheduling conflicts. Um, so that process took a long time. And during the process, in good faith, assuming that I was going to be part of this, I got on the phone with the investigators. I handed them, I emailed them, sent them all of the information that I had, including, you know, screenshots of conversations that I'd had, emails with, with lots of different employees. Most significantly, Charles Kerbeam, who was Don's boss, the, the lab manager at Hunt Valley, the place where he said he was working that day. And we heard him mention on the docuseries. So I gave them all of this information and then. The, the deal never ended up working out. So I ended up not being a part of the docuseries, which was fine. I did that was, that was on me, not them. I just couldn't do it. Prior to the docuseries going live or after the first episode or whenever it was, I don't remember very, or a couple of weeks ago, the investigators go on to, uh, I think it was the Wall Street Journal is where they did this op-ed. And, you know, they, they didn't mention me by name, but they, which is even, <laughs> they, what did they refer to me as an amateur sleuth or armchair detective or some shit like that? And said that, you know, there was this amateur sleuth that had this theory about Don's time cards being falsified, but we've debunked that. So starting from that point, that's what I discussed a couple of weeks ago that I don't understand how that is possible because I, as I've spoken to over 20 LensCrafters employees, and it's nothing that y'all have to take my word for. I had a 1999 LensCrafter manager on the show explaining this. Uh, but I, I also called LensCrafters corporate, which led me to Luxottica, which led me, I got all the way to the payroll department and spoke with a rep who works in Luxottica's payroll department and did back then explain to me in no uncertain terms that one of those timesheets is, is falsified. Something's wrong with it. He couldn't give me specifics, so I had to give him in more general terms. So the conversation went like this. So I'm looking at two times. If I, th I think I had to put it kind of hypothetically, I'm looking at two timesheets. One timesheet lists a store number and an associate ID number and a name. 
And then the other timesheet lists a different store number, a different so- associate ID number, and the same name but spelled differently. One says because one says Don and one says Donald. And I said, and they're both for supposedly the same employee for the same week. Is this possible? Explaining every element of those two timesheets. And his response was, if you're looking at those two timesheets like that, and they're supposed to be for the same employee for the same pay period, one of them has been falsified. There's no, those were his words. One has been falsified. That can't happen. And he explained to me that each employee has a, a login, a username and a password. That's how they would log in and log their time. And they would do that no matter which, they could go from lens crafters to filling in a shift at the sunglass hut, who's also owned by Luxottica. It doesn't matter. They would go into the computer. They would put in their username, password, boom, log in. And all of it, the way he explained to me, all of that information all ends up on the same timesheet. He said they can't have multiple timesheets. All of the employees that I've spoken to, it was a very common practice for lens crafters for employees to bounce from store to store to store to store. People would borrow other employees. Even the manager that I had on the show, she moved, I think, from Maryland. I don't remember that, but I think she moved down to Florida, was transferred, and she still used the same login when she moved down there. It was the same thing. So, And then the employees that that I've spoken to, including SH, who was we heard from briefly, on the docu series, I had spoken to him prior to them speaking to him for the for the show. I didn't. I I was emailing with him, but he said no. If you, it didn't matter how many different stores you worked at, you still only got one timesheet. So this seemed very cut and dry issue. And then from what Susan Simpson said, which you know the the investigators, I've I have to say I've kind of lost respect for them because of the fact that they then backed off of what they said to the Wall Street Journal in the final episode of the docu series. And now they're they're talking about that there are these issues, and it could be they they left it much more open ended. It wasn't a debunked theory as they said it was in the in the op ed. But now Susan, who I do trust emphatically, I trust Susan Simpson to no end, said she's seen the report, and she said the way she worded, I don't know. She said something along the lines of they were able to explain the different associate ID numbers that it has to do with the store numbers. I can't say that I understand it. I haven't spoken to Susan about it. I've been traveling. I have not seen this report. But she says that they were able to explain the two different associate ID numbers. So maybe there is an explanation. All I can figure based on the entire investigation that I've done and all the people that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to more since then, since this came up again, and have just reconfirmed this over and over and over and over and over again to me, the best I can understand is the fact that maybe someone could have two employee ID numbers. Like maybe that's not the way it's supposed to be done and it shouldn't be done, but it is possible to be done. You know, someone could create another employee ID number. But the other thing they said in this op-ed was that there it would be impossible to change those hours after the fact without leaving a trace, which again, I 100% agree with. But the problem is no one ever looked for the trace, including these investigators, not to their fault. They couldn't. You have to have subpoena power to get access to any of these records. But then we heard from the guy uh, that was that they, they showed on the, the episode, on the final episode, there was this longtime LensCrafters employee that says you could absolutely do this, but you'd have to do it in real time. But then we've spoken to, and I think Susan acknowledges too, people that say that, no, we, 
we've seen managers. I have personally spoken to LensCrafters managers from 1999 that said that it was a regular practice if someone forgot to punch in or forgot to punch out before the pay period closes to go into the system and do those punch-ins and outs for them, to adjust the time card, to add those times in to correct them. They have to be able to do that. So it it can be done. It doesn't have to be done in real time. And from what the investigator said in the op-ed, based on what the developer of the software said, that you couldn't do that without leaving a trace. Again, who looked for the trace? All they had was the timesheets. That's all that's there. Honestly, to me, it was the whole situation is frustrating. I still 100% stand behind the investigation that I've done and everything that everyone has told me in connection with this. When the investigators then, after that, go to the Wall Street Journal and say that you know this amateur sleuth had this theory that's been debunked, but then after I basically call them out on it on the show here and on social media because I was pissed, then they, they refilm the scene for the final episode and now say, well, we have no evidence that he wasn't working. But here's all these other issues, so maybe he wasn't working. So it's like this constant flip-flop. It, it, to me, it just seems like a conscious effort to try to not validate the investigation that's already been done on this. And so even on the Undisclosed episode from Monday where Susan said their report says that you know the, the employee ID number could be explained, but then... There's also all these other problems where they, so on Saturday, the, the one time sheet says he clocks out at one time. The other one from the other store says he clocks in 23 minutes later, and that's impossible to, to be in one place or the other. His name spelled differently. Point being, there's still all these problems. So, so everyone still seems like is saying these time sheets are still not valid, but not for the reasons I said they're not valid, that maybe it could be explained away that the the ID numbers, which that wasn't even my find. Susan Simpson is actually the one that discovered the two different employee ID numbers. I was just the one that then took that to Luxottica and started interviewing people to figure out if that was possible. You know, even Charles Kerbeam, when I talked to him, Don's lab manager, told me, no, that's not possible. It doesn't happen that way. There's no there is no honest reason for that to have happened. So there's still, regardless of the employee ID numbers, there's still a million different issues. And one of the biggest issues, which should be the biggest red flag to these investigators and anyone looking at this, even if it was a legitimate second employee ID number for the Hunt Valley store that was not the norm, it should not have been done that way. But apparently, according to their investigation, it could be done, even though it's not supposed to be done. The manager at Owings Mills, who we now know was Don's stepmother, should not have had access to that time card. And we heard that by the woman that was a 1999 manager of LensCrafters that was on our show in season one. She said, you can only see the timesheets in the system for your home store employees. So if that was a second employee ID number that was associated with the other store, then Don's stepmother, the manager at Owings Mills, could not, should not have had access to that. The fact that when the police calls, she's able to rattle off those times, and my opinion is a demonstration of premeditation. They had to have been planning for that call to occur, for her to have that information handy because it wasn't in her system. She had to either have the timesheet in hand, or somehow or another, she had to have been, and and even if Don gave her that timesheet, she would know, and that's what the uh, manager that I interviewed said, that she would have known that that was not accurate. So. Ultimately, 
as far as the timesheets go, I don't think anybody has refuted what I said in the fact that I believe the timesheet showing Don was working when Hay was went missing. I still believe that was a falsified time card. I don't see any evidence to the contrary. At best, what I've seen is someone saying that it may not be invalid because of this reason, but it still looks like it's invalid because of all these other reasons. And on a personal note, my frustration with that is, what's the fucking point? If everyone is still saying they're invalid, what's the point of trying to debunk this one element? Even though I still see no evidence that that's accurate, but again, I haven't seen their report, I don't see the point. Because ultimately, the status of the timesheets are based on what I've heard from Susan in the Undisclosed podcast, who has seen the report, is that it looks like they're still invalid. So as far as the timesheets go, that's the best I can give you. My opinion is still 100% that those timesheets in one way or another were manipulated to make it appear as though Don was working on the day and time when Heyman Lee went missing. And when you couple that with the new lividity evidence where we know for a fact Hay could not have been buried in the 7 o'clock hour when Jay says she was, it had to have been at least 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night where she was laying flat somewhere. I think that the hours that were added to that second timesheet for Saturday morning are probably also very significant. All right, now we're going to get into the Melgar case. Christina has two questions. First, did Billy Belk work with or have any interactions with Doucet or Carazal in any other cases during his time at the police department? County deputies and city officers in large cities often have to interact with each other to make sure all the paperwork is in order. Also, do we know how the general relationship is between the police department and the sheriff's department, open and friendly or competitive and hostile? Honestly, I don't know, and, I, and that may come up in this week's episode. So, you know, full disclosure, how this works, I've, when I got the trial transcripts, the way I tackle these cases is I read through quickly all of the volumes and all of the different witness testimony. I'm not taking notes. I'm just trying to get a general idea of what happened. And then when I prepare for an episode, that's when I go through each element, each testimony with a fine-tooth comb and look for details as I'm learning things along the way. So when I stopped with Billy Belk's testimony last week, which was 84 pages into 168-page testimony, that basically is the extent of my knowledge about why I don't know what he's going to say in the latter half of that testimony. And that's actually my task for today is to go through that and write the next episode. So we may find out more about that. As far as I know, I've, I, to this point, I've seen no evidence that Belk has worked with Curazal or Ducey before. And I, I don't know about the relationship between the, the county and the city police department. Karen says, assuming there were intruders in the Melgar home, is it possible Sandy didn't hear them attack Jim and that she didn't have any of his blood on her because the intruders got to her first? Yeah, that's possible. I think it's I think it's possible that Sandy was unconscious, that the attack from Jim could have happened in a different room. It's possible that Sandy did hear the attack but doesn't remember it because that is how retrograde amnesia works, uh, either due to a head injury or a seizure or both. But as far as Sandy not having any blood on her, I, I think it's just another indicator, not necessarily that she was attacked before Jim. Um, it is It is an indicator that she was attacked before him if we're dealing with one intruder. But I think that more likely the scenario is that there were multiple offenders. Uh, that's the only thing that makes sense to me is that because they're not going to leave one uncontrolled, right? They're not going to 
one person's not going to spend time tying up Jim or doing whatever they're going to do with Jim with Sandy sitting back there free to do whatever she wants. I mean, this is a, a, it's 2012. It's the age of cell phones. They don't know if she, I mean, she could be calling 911 as they speak. And I don't think they would have drug him back there to her. I don't think one person could have controlled both, maybe with a gun, but it's unlikely. I think the most likely scenario is that one or two people had control of Jim and one or two people had control of Sandy, that they were split up during that time. So I, I think that's more than likely the scenarios we're dealing with multiple offenders. Christy writes, when discussing the wraparound bruising on Sandy's arm, were they suggesting that it was indicative of her being pulled up from behind by an attacker, or were they suggesting that it was from police misconduct? No, uh, Billy Belk was just drawing on his experience investigating police misconduct in the fact that he has seen those exact types of bruises many times before. And they come from an officer manipulating someone's arms from behind them when, they're, when their arms are tied or their, their hands are cuffed behind their back. And so the point that he was making was that, you know, the officers were trying to say maybe this is a bruise that Sandy got in the struggle with Jim when they would be face to face. And what he's saying is, no, those types of bruises are from someone grabbing you from behind when you're laying on your stomach with your arms behind your back. So they're not saying it has anything to do with police misconduct. He's just saying that it's another indicator. It's evidence pointing toward the fact that there was someone behind her when she was tied up manipulating her or manhandling her to get her tied up, that the bruises look like someone grabbing her from behind, which is extremely significant because that, of course, is an indicator that we were dealing with home invaders that attacked Sandy and not Sandy killing Jim and then tying herself up. Ellen says, what is the time frame for Sandy's case now that the appellate brief has been accepted? And can we hear from Patricia Eldridge and Tamara Powell about Jesse and George? As far as the time frame for Sandy's case, I don't know. I mean, we've seen how this plays out before. It, it could be a long time. I mean, basically now we have to see if the judge is going to approve oral arguments, meaning sometimes for an appeal, they'll just read the briefs and make a decision based on that. Sometimes they'll allow oral arguments to happen. So well, we should find that out, I think, next. Then they'll schedule a time for actual oral arguments. I mean, you could be talking a year before that happened. It could be less. And then we'll be waiting for a decision. And then after the decision, then it becomes just like an Anand's case. To Actually, it's not exactly like an Anand's case. It's a little different in Texas, where in Texas, it's not up to the prosecution or defense to choose if they want to appeal a decision uh, that's made in an appeal like this. The decisions are automatically forwarded up to the criminal court of appeals to make a decision. And as I'm saying that, I'm thinking that this was sent up to the court of appeals. I don't know. Texas has a weird, complicated system where there's like this automatic oversight or appeal to uh, any decision that's made in an appeal like this. So um, timing wise, it could it could it could take quite a bit of time still. As far as uh, hearing from Patricia and from Tamara, yeah, we can absolutely do that. Um, as a matter of fact, there's, you know, I've, I've, I've spoke to, with Jesse the last time I was home. Uh, it'd be nice to get an update on them. The, the issue is I haven't been home or in the studio to where I have our setup where we can, we can record phone call interviews. You know, Mike and I are doing this, but it's in a very complicated way where we're recording our own tracks on our own ends and then sending them and Mike is blending them together. But, 
once I get back into the studio and things are normal, then yeah, I'd be happy to bring them onto a follow-up to give you guys some updates. Okay, and our last question comes from Samantha. Are we going to get into Belk's investigation? Do we have that information? If so, did he have a list of potential suspects? Well, we're going to find all of that out on Sunday uh, as I move through the rest of Billy Belk's testimony. Uh, we, we've got a lot more to go. We only made it about halfway through. So we'll see where he goes. I know for a fact that he has investigated uh, new suspects. And uh, then after that, we're going to start getting into our new investigation. And I'm still trying to. It's been difficult bouncing around on the road and everything. But I'm about to put out press releases advertising our reward. Uh, We have all the funds in place now. We're going to put out a $20,000 reward for anyone with information that leads to an arrest for the murder of Jim Melgar. So that's going to be coming soon. Uh, We've already got some investigative leads that I'm going to talk to you about on the show. And then we'll also see what Billy Belk discovered during the course of his investigation. And all of that is coming in two days this Sunday. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>